Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, history friends. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, and thank you for listening to When Diplomacy Fails. This is episode 15 of the Franco-Dutch War, so if this is your first time listening to the podcast, maybe you should check those other ones out before just jumping in right here. If you don't really care either way, or you're just seeing what this podcast is all about, then how's it going? I hope you'll stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So as you probably know by now, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, and you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or go to wdfpodcast.com and click on the Patreon banner. An important development which you should know is that When Diplomacy Fails recently smashed its $300 a month target which means that anyone who listens to the extra members feed, which you can listen to by being a diplomat, which means you pay $5 a month, basically anyone who accesses the extra members feed now gets a whole hour extra of content every month, which in many ways means you're basically going to get six episodes or so instead of four every month. So that's great. If you're interested in extra content, as well as a host of other goodies, then check out the Patreon. Remember guys, it's because of your support and generosity and taking part and being a shareholder in this podcast that I can continue to do what it is that I do without coming under too much scrutiny from people that want me to do actual work and other stuff. They don't matter, and I will always do this because I love doing it. So I hope you enjoy this latest installment of the franco Dutch War. Thanks for listening. Hello, welcome to episode 15 of the Franco-Dutch War. So last time we examined what was, in many ways, a very difficult and a sad episode in our narrative, with arguably one of the mainstays of this podcast, now conspicuous by his absence, seems a bit strange to carry on regardless as if nothing has happened. Yet, much like the people in the Dutch Republic and elsewhere had to do in late August 1672, we will have to do just that. With the Dutch holding on past the apparently worst phases of the conflict, and with the French being diverted to other fronts such as the Rhine, remaining watchful of the Spanish at all times, Louis' great campaign into the Dutch Republic seemed to have failed. It remained to be seen how he would recoup these losses, and if France could regain the momentum it had lost. I will now take you to late August, 1672. 
If the Dutch were men, they would have made peace long ago. But since they are such beasts, we had better prepare ourselves for more war. Louvois, the French Minister for War, October 1672. Johann de Witt was dead. With him died arguably the greatest statesman of the Dutch Republic since William the Silent, but on the other hand, with him also died the greatest challenge to the House of Orange. After many years of enduring the reduced honours of his ancestral station, William of Orange was now poised to seize the control which he had always strived to hold in the Netherlands. The people had voted and agitated for him to be named first Captain General and then Stadtholder, and with the Regent Party evidently reeling, William could use the opportunity to spread his power base even further. Peter Gale, who has nourished us with his knowledge since the Second Anglo-Dutch War, makes his final appearance in our narrative here, as his coverage unfortunately stops at 1672. Yet, this renowned Dutch historian was able to complete his coverage of the eventual year, and he remains an important opinion to us because of that. It's difficult to miss the unrestrained joy that the Oranges expressed during the period immediately following the massacre of the De Witts. This joy was sourced mostly from the false belief that Charles II was only at war with the Dutch Republic because of the Regent Party, and that he fought the Regent Party across the world because he wished to install his nephew into his offices, which were, after all, his birthright. Yet, we know that this incredible porky, which had existed since the Second Anglo-Dutch War a few years before, was just that baseless. But we also know that Charles and his agents had done everything to encourage it, and that Orangists had regularly made known their favour for England, that England would save the Dutch from France, that Charles II was a noble Protestant monarch who would never wage war against his nephew. In all of this, the Orangists, the mob, and all others who adhered to their cause were fatally mistaken. Gale notes with a palpable exaggeration and sadness the extent of these Dutch people's mistake, saying... Inseparably linked to their jubilation was the thought of England, of Protestant England, the land of Charles II, who loved the Prince of Orange as his son, who had just declared that he was waging war for the sole purpose of putting an end to the intolerable presumptions of the regions. To that false messiah, that enemy of the Dutch people, the foolish crowd had sacrificed two men who had so faithfully stood up to him in the nation's interest. The hearts of the late Grand Pensionary and the late Deputy at Sea were cut out and sold to England. It shouldn't be difficult to understand where Gale's feelings come from. The lie that England would save the Republic had been proved false over and over, yet the sheer desperation of the citizens must have led them to believe in ideas which to us seem incredible. I suppose it's only fair to point out that the citizens of the Dutch Republic in the early 1670s didn't possess the wealth of knowledge that I have of course accumulated on the nature of Charles II's character and schemes. 
faced with the desperate situation and appreciating the circumstances of the era which put great stock in the importance of family ties, perhaps it was only reasonable that they expected the uncle of their favourite orange prince to be acting in their best interests. How were they to know that Charles had all but engineered the very lie which they now believed in, or that he had planned for the downfall of their state and an end to its independence, or that, as far as he was concerned, the only acceptable Dutch Republic was one which was wedded by force to both France and England. However desperate the situation had been in the Dutch Republic, by the time of the massacre of the De Witts, French soldiers had already mostly evacuated the south of the country, and thus the most formidable challenges posed to Dutch sovereignty were removed. And that's not to say that the Republic was safe, but thanks in large part to the rumoured responses of the other powers, most notably in Spain, Brandenburg and Austria, Louis began to move his largest army, under the command of Marshal Turenne, over the Rhine while he himself returned to France. The King of France, having launched the war almost solely for the glory and prestige it would net him, and for the rich rewards he anticipated, had by early August largely accepted that little glory was to be had in the melancholy drudgery that fighting in the flooded Netherlands had descended into. Louis instead planned to preemptively order his marshals to take the fight to the enemy before they organised themselves, with a wider plan aimed at recuing some glory and launching a grand campaign the following summer. The international situation is thus a bit confusing at this time, well mainly because nobody had officially declared war, though as we saw soldiers were still moving out from Germany and the Spanish Netherlands was also worrying into life. Most authors explain this by pointing to the fact that it was relatively late in the campaigning year by the time any actual fighting took place, and that there was a lot of posturing going on amongst the other European powers, because they were watching the situation unfold. There was also a good deal of trepidation, in the Emperor's case most especially, as Leopold was consistently on the lookout for signs of Ottoman activity to the east, and the almost compulsory Hungarian revolt that seemed to go along with it. Saying that, though, Habsburg agents had made contact with Madrid, and the Spanish decision to sign a defensive alliance with the Dutch in the months before the war meant, well, first of all, the Spanish weren't good at alliances because they had yet to officially enter the war on the side of the Dutch as per the terms of that alliance, but it also meant that Spain was willing to sacrifice the strange safety that the Triple Alliance had originally offered it. Of all the interested parties, the Elector of Brandenburg is perhaps the easiest to explain, though. If you can remember back to previous episodes... The Great Elector was always concerned at Louis XIV's power overwhelming the Dutch Republic, and he had gone to some significant diplomatic lengths to ensure that Louis wouldn't have a totally free hand. Once Frederick William, the Great Elector, learned of the treaty signed between Louis and a somewhat reluctant Holy Roman Emperor in November 1671, he seemed to have felt compelled to act. His campaign to raise support for the Dutch in the months before the war was evidently a failure, and it is also likely that he was taken utterly by surprise when the French seemed to overwhelm all before them in such a short space of time. When rumours of the Dutch peace overtures were learned of in early July of 1672, Frederick William must have believed that it was over. In spite of his pledges to aid his nephew William of Orange, the Anglo-French plot had simply moved too quickly for him to stop it. Yet the nature of the communication and postal system in 1670s Europe meant that by the time Frederick William believed it was all over, the Dutch were having a fire lit under them by indignant and resilient towns in Holland, who banded together within their states to cooperate and flood their lands. Coupled with the resistance of these towns and the resulting calamity that this caused amongst Turenne's major force was the slow progress elsewhere, 
the German allies under Marshal Luxembourg and the Bishop of Münster had stalled outside the city of Groningen as they attempted to besiege it over the month of August. So even with the continued French occupation and the contributions levied from these lands, there was still reason to be positive. We know that throughout July William and Charles continued their correspondence, while the English deputation arrived and was then baffled when William didn't fall over himself to ingratiate himself at London's feet. This put Steele not only into Conrad von Buningen, who reported back to the States of Holland on the event, but also Frederick William the Great Elector of Brandenburg, whose agents had long since learned that the Dutch Republic was, in fact, managing to survive. As if encouraged by the news that all hope was not lost, Frederick William seems to have made the decision to move against Louis XIV, but like the other potential allies that the Dutch Republic could count on, he so far refrained from declaring outright war. In between about mid-July and early August, information on this period is surprisingly hard to come by, folks, Frederick William benefited from some imperial soldiers lent to him by Leopold, though again Leopold wouldn't declare war either. Bolstered by these reinforcements, Frederick William marched through Munster, concerning everyone's favourite prince-bishop there. As Bernhard van Galen, the prince-bishop of Munster, reacted to the emperor's moves, Turenne took up position on the Rhine. And what this looked like on the map, for those of you without the benefit of Patreon's access to the episode scripts and the images therein, wink wink nudge nudge, is that Turenne basically turned his force around, that was not smooth at all, as per Louis XIV's orders. The Rhine, in other words, wasn't far, and this explains why there was such a sense of urgency involved in Louis XIV's orders. You see, the French couldn't afford to allow their potential enemies to move closer and possibly box them in between the rivers, Meuse and Rhine. By marching first, though, Turenne ensured that he was in a good position by January 1673, which incidentally was how long it took for Frederick William to get into position. By now, Frederick William possessed 25,000 soldiers in the combined Imperial Brandenburg Army, which he now commanded. In Turenne's mind, the great elector should never have been allowed to get this far, but he had been vetoed from acting himself or launching an autumn campaign by Louvois. Remember, the French Minister for War... And this action may in fact have prolonged the war, because rather than march to meet the Allied German army advancing towards the Rhine from the east in a pitched battle, Turenne was ordered to quarter his troops from November to early January for the sake of holding what Louis' court believed was a vulnerable flank along the Rhine. But Turenne was adamant that the French governing apparatus had no real concept of how affairs were unfolding along the front line. In spite of his protestations though, his forces were commanded to sit tight, which must have been particularly difficult as an order to abide by, when it was learned that the Dutch were on the move, and they were in the process of launching a counterattack. William of Orange moved an army consisting mostly of militia to besiege Charleroi in a campaign which must have been balked at by the French soldiery. Just to put it in perspective, guys, Charleroi is about 100 kilometres southwest of Maastricht, which itself was literally surrounded by French troops. Charleroi was a fortress town situated on a westward flowing fork in the Meuse River called the Sambre. Since the opening sluices had inundated the land, French soldiers had been placed in frontier garrisons along the waterline, while some had ventured daringly into the Spanish Netherlands to collect forage that was so badly needed. As if to teach the Dutch a lesson, the right and left bank of the Meuse River had been pillaged relentlessly by Marshal Luxembourg's men who by this point had been sort of swapped from his region of command with Turenne, who now watched the Rhine front as Luxembourg had once done. 
Again, it should be added that knowing where everything is at this point isn't really essential for you to grasp the whole story, although looking at a map may help you appreciate better what William actually did. Luxembourg complained in October 1672, amidst the cold winds and endless rain in the backdrop of the flooded wasteland, that the rain falls without stopping. At the moment it falls as if they were pouring it out in buckets, and I assure you that a man needs to be made of iron to bear it. All the roads are impassable and no one would dream of moving. The frustration of the French advance and of their allies would lead them to do unsavoury things like pillage the Meuse Valley as we saw, but it also enabled William to skirt around them and campaign down that riverbank, which, don't forget, stretched into France. This counter-attack by William, which culminated at his siege of Charleroi in November, but which began in September with a march down the Meuse and past the French positions, is normally mentioned only insofar as it ended in a defeat for the Dutch, because, well, their siege was unsuccessful and they were forced to withdraw back home. Yet, I would argue that this plain image of the Dutch campaigning at all, in a form other than desperate resistance, was highly significant in itself. It was clear that the moving of Turenne's army had made all the difference. With that main thrust of the initial French invasion force now waiting for Germans along the Rhine, the window had been left mostly open for William to creep past and effect a change in the status quo of the French initiative. That William was unsuccessful wasn't actually as unfortunate for the Dutch as it might appear. William had taken minimal risk and lost a very small amount of men, while he made off with a number of supplies and cannon as well. These were important morale boosts, as William well understood, but they also served to demonstrate to the gathering, but still unofficial coalition against Louis, that the Dutch, while they had been undeniably bloodied, were determined to resist and would take the fight to the French invader, if necessary, even on his own lands. William's actions were also possible because of Louis's questionable decision to release 20,000 Dutch prisoners in return for a scant ransom in early August, as we saw last time. And this, along with Turenne's absence, the improving morale and the increase in professionalism that followed amongst the Dutch soldiery, enabled William to actually contemplate a further campaign for the new season of 1673. William wasn't the only one looking to 1673, though. As the Germans marched towards Turenne's position and planned to cross at the fortress of Koblenz, Turenne finally had the means and information he needed to strike back at them. Led by the Great Elector, these 25,000 men represented the most concrete threat to French interests thus far in the current war. And if France was to have any prospect of turning the stagnation around, it would have... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Have to first deal with these contingents of men. The great elector with imperial troops on loan from the emperor made his way towards Trier, an electorate led by a fellow elector by the name of Karl Kaspar von der Leyen, who himself had been persuaded by Leopold to allow the Brandenburg Imperial Army through his lands. While the great elector was crossing over, Turin struck, and in January he attacked the combined Allied army, defeated it, and pushed it back through Trier. John A. Lynn noted that Turin pursued Frederick William all the way to Brandenburg, and added that, Turin's army entered the elector's lands and so desolated them that the elector agreed to a peace, solemnized in the Treaty of Vassem on the 6th of June, 1673. With the great elector effectively defeated and the first allied joint venture of the war also overcome, Turin could at least feel satisfied that his master would appreciate his service. In a sense, though, the defeat of the allies here made the widening of the war almost inevitable. Leopold had been content to watch from the sidelines, merely using his considerable rights and privileges to pressure his peers in Germany to look unfavourably upon the French. In some cases he didn't have much luck, such as in Bavaria, but in other cases like the aforementioned Trier and, of course, Brandenburg, which was Vienna and Spain's major ally by this point, the Emperor's influence was palpable. By handing the Allies their first military defeat, Turenne virtually forced all involved to take French ambitions more seriously. With French armies almost unopposed along the Rhine, the narrative of the wicked French invader could be presented to the rest of the Holy Roman Empire, and though it would enjoy varying degrees of success as a narrative, it did ensure that Leopold would have to enter an official war against Louis in the near future. Simply lending his allies troops was evidently no longer going to suffice. In addition to this, the Spanish had been made increasingly aware of French moves, particularly as the forces under Marshal Luxembourg strayed into the Spanish Netherlands in desperate search of forage. The tenacity and determination of Count Monterey to join the Dutch meant that garrison soldiers would periodically be marched menacingly up to the border with the Dutch, and in fact by November of 1672, Monterey was lending the Dutch these soldiers to employ along the waterline in Holland a striking and underrated example of Spanish-Dutch cooperation, which was surely not lost or underrated by Louis XIV. Yet Madrid also exercised its influence in diplomacy. You see, over the course of autumn 1672, the Spanish government became increasingly more active in petitioning the English agents to break with France. At the same time, the Swedes proposed that they would mediate the Franco-Dutch war, but this was opposed by the great elector Frederick William, since in his mind, Brandenburg would not benefit from the reduction in Dutch power, which a peace with France would surely bring about by late 1672. In Frederick William's mind, and in those of his advisers, the Dutch, and indeed the balance of power in Europe, could be best helped through a determined effort 
poised against Louis XIV. Frederick William's belief that Louis had to be opposed seems to have driven his policy, though on the surface he would flip-flop between pro and anti-French depending on the direct threat that that kingdom posed to his own lands. Indeed, arguably the most significant pariah of these disparate events was not the Holy Roman Emperor, but Charles II, the King of Britain. It was he who had to deal with the worst of all dilemmas, an unpopular war which was becoming increasingly difficult to win or even make any headway in. The money voted by Parliament had long since dried up, and though Charles prorogued Parliament in October, unwilling as he was to hear the pleas of MPs to bring the war to an end, he knew that by February 1673 he would have to face the music, as not only would proroguing Parliament once more be seen as dangerous and unconstitutional, but he also needed to ask them for money. How had the English fared in their efforts to glean some benefit from Louis' triumphant march across both the Dutch and European sensibilities? Well, the short answer is that by and large, once the initial enthusiasm wore off, the British people were in a majority opposed to the war. The long answer, well, let's take a closer look. The nature of British public opinion, the waning popularity of Charles's regime, the paranoia and importance of religion in British society, the concerns many MPs had for the House of Stuart in general, and the blatant disrespect Charles had shown Parliament in the past, all of these combined to ensure that the very constitution of Britain would work against its monarch if Charles couldn't work himself at either securing some kind of victory which would instill national pride, or find some other means to boost the popularity of the conflict. As we know, British society had been divided in the years before between those of an anti-Dutch or an anti-French persuasion. The former normally emphasised the Dutch ambitions for universal monarchy by coin, the latter normally emphasised the French ambitions for universal monarchy by forceful Catholicism. The anti-French party tended to be more concerned with religious affairs, and their concerns were greatly inflamed with Charles's attempts to install the Declaration of Indulgences mere weeks before the war with the Netherlands was declared. This ill-timed venture was meant to ensure Catholic or non-conformist support for the war, but all it really did was inflame passions on both sides. Stephen Pincus, in his very important article for this narrative of ours, entitled From Butter Boxes to Wooden Shoes, the Shift in English Popular Sentiment from Anti-Dutch to Anti-French in the 1670s, yes, it's a mouthful, paints a critically important story for our narrative, and helps to explain the pressing question of why the British people seem to switch their sensibilities from so resolutely anti-Dutch in the 1660s and early 70s to living in fear of France and eventually signing an alliance with the Dutch in the late 1670s. Pincus noted that, When England, in concert with France, declared war against the United Provinces in late spring 1672, the English political nation was forced to decide which was the greater threat. Most moderates trusted the government's assessment and supported the war. Seamen volunteered to serve in the fleet in droves, provoking one observer to claim that Never so great a cheerfulness was known in the seamen to enter into the services now, everyone freely offering themselves to it and pressing who shall get in first. Ever the optimist, which is weird considering how wholly against the war with the Dutch he initially was, if we remember back a few episodes, the Earl of Arlington noted that, It cannot be denied, but the world is now generally convinced that the provocations His Majesty hath exposed in his declaration to have received from the Dutch 
do sufficiently justify the war he is making upon them. Furthermore, did the Venetian secretary in London note on the outbreak of the war that War against Holland was proclaimed yesterday at all the usual places in London. There were crowds of people who, being aware of the causes, through the declarations reported, approved of the step, blessing his majesty with one accord and willingly sacrificing all commercial considerations for the sake of the honour and glory of the country. If the war was initially exciting or enticing enough to be popular, this view didn't last. For a variety of reasons, the war soon dipped and then plummeted in popularity, as Pincus explained. Yet even as news reached England of the spectacular early successes of the Allied forces in the very first campaign, English popular opinion turned against the war. Political moderates, those who had been willing to accept the government's argument that the Dutch Republic represented a more immediate and dangerous threat than the French monarchy, reversed their assessment. The mood was such that by January 1673, a month before Charles was due to ask for more money to fight the Dutch with, a memorandum was circulating amongst MPs, which stated that All the mischiefs we have felt, or may hereafter fear from the Hollanders, though ten times greater than what we are falsely pretended, cannot possibly be half that dangerous of consequence to us as the advantages now given to the growth of French power by this pernicious league, and added that these advantages had enabled Louis to overcome the greatest difficulty in his way to that universal monarchy to which he has so long aspired. By August 1673, a little bit later on in our narrative, one MP noted that the disaffection is so great at this conjunction with the French that the general speech in the city and that amongst the soberest and chiefest persons is that unless this alliance with France be broken, the nation will be ruined. Yet a whole year before, while the Dutch Republic seemed at breaking point in July 1672, a correspondent for The Whitby, a circular paper in London, noted that Our country talk is of no war but, if any war, than war with France. Some claimed that a latent sympathy for the Dutch existed in Britain, as one MP noted how, We are so Dutchified here that a Dutchman cannot be more dejected than our people are generally for the sad condition we understand the Hollander to be in. So how could Charles possibly hope to stem this anti-French and apparently pro-Dutch tide and inspire his people to fight an increasingly unpopular war? While Charles believed that by investing in the pamphlet war, the people would be informed of his version of the truth. Thus we see an emergence of a number of English and Dutch pamphlets from autumn 1672 to the following year, with the English editions claiming that Charles was waging war only for the sake of his nephew and to bring down the regents, a further example of this lie being parroted, and the Dutch pamphlets emphasising the actual events of the war, dismantling the English arguments and from early 1673, talking up the Dutch will to resist the French, especially in the case of William of Orange. In short, what Charles hoped would result in a propaganda boost turned out to be a pure disaster for his reign. Once the De Witts were murdered, it became increasingly hard for Charles's faction to argue that they were only fighting for William's rightful offices, especially when that same William so blatantly refused to consider the offer of being an English vassal. We will return to the issue of pamphlets and indeed of English public opinion in a few episodes, particularly as the very authors themselves begin to change their tune and find it harder and harder to put forward a sound reasoning for a war with the now orangest Netherlands, led by the nephew of the king.
Thus, when Charles did meet with his MPs in a stormy session over spring 1673, he did so in the backdrop of a failing PR campaign, a rising feeling of Francophobia, and an increasing identification with both the Prince of Orange and the Dutch Republic itself as the necessary bulwark against the designs of the warmongering French. The London Gazette reported on the 14th of February that, Here there is great hopes that the Parliament of England will express a dissatisfaction with the war, and be unwilling to assist the King with supplies necessary to carry it on. But if these hopes should be dashed, the spirits of this people would altogether fail them, who stick not openly to declare, they promise themselves, great matters from the Parliament on their behalf. The great ones here endeavour to persuade the people that the Parliament of England will blame the King for joining with France against them, and that they will not supply him with money to go through with it. That Parliament did approve more funds for Charles's war is surprising, but these approvals came only reluctantly, and only in return for Charles's pledge to cancel the Declaration of Indulgences, which MPs believed was leaving their country open to religious intrigues from the French, and they would only grant a paltry 70 grand a month, for 18 months, hardly enough to sustain Britain's war effort for long. Seor Boxer noted at the same time that the resident MPs likely only approved this minimum amount at all because they envisioned a repeat of the Dutch attack up the Medway if their navy couldn't be supplied or sent out to sea. 70,000 a month was barely enough to maintain a fleet for the year, but with such a low sum there could virtually be no independent British actions in the war which Charles must have known meant increased inaction and dallying in Britain, which in turn would lead to increased dissatisfaction with the war. With much exasperation did Charles II note in mid-March 1673, in response to the heavy demands of the MPs in return for the granting of war funds, What you then voted unanimously did both give life to my affairs at home and then dishearten my enemies abroad, but the seeming delay it hath met with all since, hath made them take new courage, and they are now preparing for this next summer a greater fleet, as they say, than ever they had yet, so that if the supply is not very speedily dispatched, it will be altogether ineffectual, and the safety, honour and interest of England must of necessity be exposed. Pray lay this to heart, and let not the fears and jealousies of some draw an inevitable ruin on us all. Boxer perceptively noted that the desperation palpable in Charles's pleas, coupled with the reports within the London Gazette declaring the weighty sacrifices agreed to by MPs, didn't exactly gel with that paper's consistent reports that the Dutch were buckling, that the war was unpopular in the Netherlands, and that victory was merely weeks away. In other words, if the Dutch were so nearly beaten, why did the king require so much resources from reluctant MPs to keep the war going? Such a contradiction wasn't lost on Dutch pamphlets, who had remained far more objective in their coverage of the war. Above all, though, what readers of the British pamphlets would have understood, as did Charles, was the fact that they never signed up for a long war, and certainly not a European-wide war. The war was barely sustainable with just the Dutch participating in it, but so long as other powers didn't declare against the French and make Louis appear even more like the villain of the story, Charles may have hoped that it could be brought to at least a semi-successful conclusion. Thus, when it became clear that the recent French defeat of the unofficial Allied attempts to forestall Louis' war effort had put steel into these same powers rather than scared them off, Charles must have known that he was in trouble. In August 1673, the Emperor and Spain signed an alliance with one another and separate alliances with the Dutch. Both the Spanish and Dutch in their agreements 
committed to reduce France to its 1659 borders, while Charles of Lorraine, whom Louis had evicted from his domains in 1670, also joined the grouping. By the middle of October 1673, Spain and France were at war, and the great elector, Frederick William, then resumed Brandenburg's commitment to the Dutch, pledging his state once again back into the Allied camp by the end of that month. Thus, by late 1673, it seemed as though the gamble had failed. Charles II, for all his ambitions, wasn't merely a participant in a minor European war, he was now a stakeholder in the first of Louis's major wars, The only thing the British people wanted was out. Well, before we go, guys, I think it's only fair to run down the patrons who have signed up in the last week or so. First of all, I want to give you guys a huge thanks, obviously, for signing up, because I really, really appreciate it, and I can't wait to send you guys your goodies that you're entitled to. And of course, I hope you enjoy the extra feed. Some of you guys might still be listening to the podcast normally, but, but don't forget you are entitled to access the When Diplomacy Fails members extra feed, so long as you are a diplomat, rank, or higher. In other words, so long as you are a $5 pledger or more. So, the new patrons who have signed up this week are Julie I. J. Diplomat, Susan F. Diplomat, Parker M. Diplomat, Susan W. Embassy Intern, David S. Diplomat, Matthew P. Diplomat, and Josh N. Diplomat. And that's it for this week, guys. I'm recording this on, well, Saturday, so anyone who comes in after this date, don't worry, you'll be picked up next week, as always. Thanks a million, guys. I really appreciate it so much. And to you, thanks for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.